Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. Well, the year is 1989. Nope, 1889, sorry. 1889, Benjamin Harrison is our president. The Eiffel Tower has just opened in Paris, France. Charlie Chaplin was born. Montana, Washington, and the Dakotas are admitted as states into our union, and the first issue of the Wall Street Journal is published. All of that happened in 1889. Some of you are thinking that's a long time ago. Was it the Dark Ages? Well, um, well, not exactly. Electricity had been discovered and invented, but it was not household electricity necessarily yet. Um, there were many inventions, many new things were happening, and in 1889, our church was founded. You start thinking about 135 years old, that's quite the history, that's quite the legacy, wouldn't you say? Uh, raise your hand if you feel like you're 135 years old. Let's see where you're at. All right. Raise your hand if you're sitting next to someone who looks like they're 135 <laughs> years old. Okay. Okay. The pioneers of our movement were seeking to reform the church from within. And so they sought the unifications of all Christians in a single body pattern after the church in the New Testament. The first church, that's where we get our name, first Christian church, where our ideas and our values were designed to be patterned after the first church that was modeled for us in the book of Acts. And so we have axioms or values that we have spoken about in the history of our movement, one of which is where the Bible speaks, we will speak, and where the Bible is silent, we will be silent. And so to kick off the year with, uh, with this study on guiding values, what we're going to do is look at three or four different guiding values that have guided our church in the past and will continue to guide us in the future. We want to ask, answer these questions, who are we and why are we here? Why are we here as this specific church? Why are we here together? What are our guiding values? And this is kind of our statement um, that we want to commit to. It says this, we're a church family committed to loving God and loving others through healthy are through authentic faith, healthy relationships, and giving every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. I want you to say that with me together. Ready? Begin. We are a church family committed to loving God and loving others through authentic faith, healthy relationships, and giving every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. This is why we're here. We want to love God and love one another. We want to pursue what it looks like to have an authentic faith. We want to be known for developing strong, healthy relationships. And no matter what we do or where we are, we want to give every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. Because Jesus changes everything. So this is why we're here. So over the next few weeks in January, we're going to unpack this statement together using the different scriptures that have inspired this statement. So we're going to unpack it. Number one, uh, or first of all, if you're following in your notes, we are a church. Everyone say that out loud. Ready, begin. 
We are a church. Now it's 2024, and church can have a bad or dirty connotation. But if you look at the origination of where this word comes from, I think you'll find for ourselves, it is a worthwhile pursuit for us to go back to what it looks like for us to be a church. We're going to begin in Matthew chapter 16 this morning. Matthew chapter 16 in verse 13, it says this, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who, everyone say who, do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some think you are John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. You say, why would they have so much trouble identifying who Jesus is? Well, you have to understand, we, they didn't have the type of communication we had today. We didn't have selfies. They didn't have a way to, uh, to take pictures. They didn't have a way to communicate from miles uh, away or kilometers away uh, quickly and instantly like we did. If something were to happen of note 2,000 miles away, we would know in 20 seconds, wouldn't we? We would know. We would be aware. And so for people in the area to not know exactly who Jesus is, even though he is, uh, he is committing miracles, even though he's making these proclamations of who he is, even though he has a little band of followers, it would not be unreasonable for people not to know exactly who he was. They would have heard the name and maybe they thought, well, maybe this is a nickname for something else. Or they may have heard they had a group of followers and they're like, no, 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 that's John the Baptist. That's who he is. They might have heard the stories, but it would not have been unreasonable for them to not know exactly who he is. So this response kind of lets us in on the fact that not everyone know who Jesus was. Some say that you are John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, read verse 15 with me. Ready, begin. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? By the way, this is the most important question you will ever answer in your life. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say? Jesus began this discourse by saying, what are people saying? What are they, who do they think I am? And they gave a response. And then Jesus asked this question, yes, but who do you say that I am? Am I just a good teacher? Am I just this person that performs miracles? Who do you say that I am? And so Peter responds, verse 16, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the son of the living God. This is one of the statements that we have people repeat when they're getting baptized because it's Peter's way of identifying in his heart, in his mind, and resolving once and for all, I believe who Jesus is. He is the Christ. You'll notice there, he doesn't say, I believe you are Jesus Christ. He is not naming Jesus' name, but what does it say? It says you are the Christ. In other words, Christ is not Jesus's last name, Jesus Christ. There's not a family of Christ that were living in Jerusalem. What they're saying is Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Christ and Messiah are the same word, one in Hebrew and one in Greek. And what it is referring to is Jesus is the anointed one. He is the promised one. He is the one who's going to save us from our sins. All of this time for generations and generations, we have been waiting for the one who's going to save our people. Jesus is 
the Christ. And then he says, the son of the living God. Jesus responds and answers him and says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then in verse 18, we see these words, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the first time the word church is used in Scripture, Matthew chapter 16. Now, in this phrase, in this uh, verse, Peter is called uh, this rock. And we've got to kind of help define this because the words this rock um, can be a source of much controversy. The name Peter means rock. Now, though perhaps unlikely, Peter was a rock and we've become a rock. Uh, think about Peter's life. It was unlikely that Jesus would make this statement about Peter had you known everything else about Peter's life. Peter was, uh, Peter was uh, someone who uh, constantly got himself into predicaments, let's say that nicely, right? He would uh, constantly uh, put his foot in his mouth. Uh, Darren preached last Sunday and um, and he preached uh, a portion of his message was on the transfiguration of Christ, right? The moment where Jesus is, uh, uh, he hears the audible voice from heaven and, and, and they're there with him on the mount. And if you read that, as Darren was preaching, I was looking at it in, in my Bible. And uh, the words that were used in my Bible is uh, the, the Holy Spirit had to interrupt Peter. Like, how would you like to be in that scenario where you are literally seeing Jesus on the mount with a couple of other people, and then you're hearing the voice of God, and then you are compelled to speak in a, such a way where the Holy Spirit has to interrupt you for a change? This is Peter, and so perhaps an unlikely source to become the rock, he would become the rock, and God was and would transform his natural extreme character into something solid and reliable. And so when he is talking about this rock, I will build my church, he's using a play on words in Peter's name, and he's referring to himself. He might even gesture to himself. He says, you are Peter, you are this rock, but on this rock, I will build my church. And so Peter, by his own testimony, doesn't see himself as a rock when the church was first founded in fact, the way he describes himself is interesting. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2 for just a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 says this. You are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. So he describes the Christ there, you're coming to Christ, as the cornerstone of of God's temple. And then verse 5, he says this, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. There's a relationship between living stones and cornerstones, but Peter is quick to identify, hey, it is all about Jesus. So we are a church founded by Jesus. Not only that, when we think about the fact that we're a church it's important to recognize and to say out loud something that's pretty obvious. The church belongs to Jesus. So we are the living stones, but he is the cornerstone, and the church belongs to Jesus. 
Matthew 16 is the first time that church is used in the New Testament using this ancient Greek word, which is ekklesia. Now, what's beautiful is Matthew 16 is well before the book of Acts. It's well before the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. It's well before the ascension of Jesus. It's well before the Holy Spirit coming down uh, on those disciples in Acts chapter 2. It's well before uh, disciples started going to uh, the regions around in order to build small gatherings of people. It is well before all that. And yet Matthew 16 records Jesus promising that there would be a day when the church would take center stage. Jesus was anticipating or prophesying that there would become a day that those who would believe in the message of Jesus would come together in gatherings together as the church. Here's what's beautiful about that. We are part of that promise. Our church is part of that promise. We live out that reality as, body, uh, as a body of believers. And so when you think about John chapter 17 and Jesus praying for those who would one day become a part of these, these gatherings, these churches. When you think about Jesus saying, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against us. What he's describing is what we are, these living stones, a part of the cornerstone. We are the church and the church belongs to Jesus. Now, the ancient word ecclesia, here used to translate into church, means a group, a group of people, uh, an assembly that's called out. In fact, in describing the group of his followers, Jesus deliberately chose a word without any religious meaning. Isn't that interesting? In that common refrain or that common language back there in first century Jerusalem, if they used the word ecclesia, if they used the word church, it had nothing to do with religion. It was simply describing a group of people. So you could be a church anywhere. You could be a church as long as there was a group of people that was a church. And I think it's interesting that Jesus purposely uses a word that has no religious connotation to describe the group of people that would gather in his name. Now, we live in a different world where church is nothing but a religious term, right? In fact, if you walked into a restaurant and you just sat down with a group of people and said, oh, it looks like we're having church. This is a good church of people. This is a good gathering of people. People wouldn't understand that phraseology, right? But Jesus purposely chose a word without religious meaning. Why? To to mark the striking uh, difference that the group of people should have in their life. It's interesting. He says, on this rock, I will build. In, In other words, he will build a firm foundation He describes it as his church that belongs to him. And so we are a church, not only that in our statement, we are a church family. We're a church family. Uh, We're going to go to 1 John chapter 3 now. 1 John chapter 3 in verse 1 says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. This is a beautiful, amazing passage that describes what happens when we become a part of the family of God. Because not only are we are a church, we are a church family. And what that means for us is this. We are not a family because of our worth. We are a family by birth. We're not a family because of our worth. We're a family by birth. There's a couple of stories in the New Testament that help us understand that. When you think about... um, you think about Nicodemus coming to Jesus in the middle of the night, and Nicodemus wants to know, what is this teacher teaching? What is this story that you've been telling us? What are you trying to teach us? And Jesus cuts right to the chase, and he says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus had never heard those words in that kind of phrase before. And he says, I do not understand. How do I go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus explained to him, this idea of being part of the family of God has more to do with your, uh, your decision to humble yourself and to call on the name of the Lord than it does your worth. Here's Nicodemus, and he was a leader. He was the one who knew the law. He was the one that knew righteousness. He was the one that knew the sacrifices. He knew all of the holidays. He knew all the feasts. He knew everything on where it should be and how it should go when it came to religion. And Jesus said, that is not the criteria by which we are going to evaluate your ability to become a child of God. Your resume does not matter. Your record does not matter. What matters is, are you willing to be born again. Jesus paints the picture in a story in the New Testament. We call it the, 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 the lost son or the prodigal son. Boy, Luke chapter 15. There's the son and we know the story. The son says, I want what's mine now. And so the father gives it to him. He has two sons, but he gives it to him. He gives him his inheritance. The Bible says that the, the son, uh, depending on your translation, says he, uh, he wasted his possessions. He lived out a riotous living. And he wasted all his money. He spent it all. He had nothing. And in his, uh, and in his depravity and in his sense of nothing, he says, I need to get a job. And so he finds a job uh, feeding pigs. And then he says, my goodness, Even these pigs have more than I to eat. And in his sorrow, in his brokenness, he says, I know what I'll do. I'm going to go back home. And even in his mind, the young man says this, I know I'm not worthy to be his son anymore, but maybe I could be his servant. Maybe I could work for my dad. And he comes up with this story. He comes up with this speech on what he would say if he would ever come back to his father's house. And you could picture him making the journey home and he's repeating the speech and he's, uh, Father, I know I have sinned. I'm sorry. I know I can't be a son anymore. I'd like, to, I'd like to work for you. Maybe I can be your servant. Maybe I could work for you. And the reality of that story comes to fruition when the father sees him afar off. And he runs out in front of the crowd. He hugs him and he gives him a bunch of gifts signifying that you are not family because of your worth. You're a family by birth. 
How many of you are parents right now? Imagine one of your kids come up to you, and maybe this is when they're eight or nine years old, and we've used this illustration before, and they come up to you and say, I'm, I, I'm ready to be a part of this family. I've seen how we lived. I kind of know, know my role. I kind of know your role. I know where my room is. I kind of like the situation we're in. Mom, dad, congratulations. I'm ready to be your child. And you would say, how dare you? You became a member of this family when you were born. This is what Jesus is saying. It's not about worth. It's not about a resume. It's not about what you've achieved. We're a family because of birth. This is what 1 John is telling us. Galatians says it this way, and this is beautiful because this is Paul beautifully describing the church. He says this, when the time had come, God sent his son. I'm sorry, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Isn't that beautiful? Look at verse 6 again. Uh, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. That word Abba denotes the word daddy. It's this familiar refrain from a child to his father, Abba. Most of you know I was able to spend some time with my family last week. Libby and I were in Southern California, and on one of the nights, Saturday night, I got to preach in India, which was cool. Because you can do that now with technology, right? Uh, my dad set up the computer and they were having a service and he asked if I wanted to greet the church and preach for a few minutes. So, and so I did and um, it was awesome. And then we prayed and different things. And so through the, the course of the, the time that we were there, um, we would pray every night together as a family. And, um, and my mom would pray, <clears throat> my mom would pray in Telugu, our native language. And... Um, and it's beautiful, and I can understand most <clears throat> of what my mom is saying. And after one of the nights, um, Libby, of course, is listening, and she keeps hearing a word being repeated in the prayer when my mom is praying. And so after we're done praying, she goes, Mom, what, what's that word, Nina, that you're using? What, what does that mean? And she says, well, well that, that means Dad. That means father. I'm calling him my father. I'm calling him my dad. This is the spirit of the father that has been placed in us. Why? So that we would be able to call him dad. Daddy. Father. Romans says it this way. Paul in Romans says it this way. Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. For those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Folks, we are redeemed. We're no longer slaves. We're children. He goes on in Romans 12 to say this. So in Christ, we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to all the others. 
So because we're in Christ, we're his. We're no longer slaves. We are children. We call him Abba. We are a church. We're also a church family. Now, because of those rights, we have responsibilities. Because of the relationships we have, we have responsibilities. And so our statement says this, we are a church family committed to loving God and loving others. I want to show you a time in Scripture where Jesus had to use these words in his defense. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, it says this, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. <clears throat> Moses, or Moses. Matthew gives us this fascinating scene of the opponents of Jesus, and they are working hard to embarrass Jesus. One of them, verse 35 says, an expert in the law tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, this question was planned to trap Jesus. In asking Jesus to choose one great commandment, they hoped to point out that Jesus was neglecting the rest. You see, the rabbis knew that of the 613 commandments, if they could get him to identify one as a greater, then maybe they could point out some inconsistencies in Jesus' teaching. So Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So Jesus, who had the perfect understanding of the essence of the law, had no difficulty, difficulty answering them. Instead of promoting one commandment over the other, Jesus defined the law into its core principle, which is this. Love the Lord with everything you have and love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't mean that we love ourselves before we can love anyone else. It means that in the same way we take care of ourselves and are concerned about our own interest, we should take care and have concern for the interest of others. You see, God's moral expectation of man can be briefly and powerfully said in these two statements. Love God and love one another. And so we will be a church committed to loving God and loving others. And if the love of God is real in our life, it will show up by the presence of this love for God and the others. You think about uh, when the commandments were first instituted in Exodus. Moses summons uh, the people to gather, and we see the Ten Commandments that are given. And if you were to go through the Ten Commandments, you'll see that some of the commandments are designed to help us understand our relationship with God, right? You should have no other gods besides Him. All of those, those, I think the first four are dependent on our relationship with God. And then the next commandments are focused on our relationships with one another. What does it look like for you to have love for your fellow mankind? And then based on those 10 commandments, they came up with the structure of what's known as the law. 
the 613 commands. And the whole goal behind the laws is this. Here's how to have a successful society. Here's how we are going to operate within one another. And so Moses took uh, took this massive group of laws, was able to have 10 of them that represented the larger sum. And here Christ brings the 10 commandments down to two. The law was created to establish this society, but it was also created to be a mirror to us. No one could ever achieve the law. In fact, the law was designed to be a mirror to reveal to ourselves just how broken we are. And so Jesus did not come to destroy this law, but to fulfill it. And for the believer in Christ, Jesus sums up the entire weight of the law in these two commandments. And within these two commandments, all the other commandments hang. You think about it. Idolatry. Well, if we love God with all our heart, our soul, and our mind, then idolatry would become less appealing. Uh, You think about lust. You think about greed and murder. If we had a proper understanding of what it looked like to love our neighbors, to love others, we would not lust. We would not uh, uh, operate out of greed. We would not operate out of anger or murder. There would be honesty. There wouldn't be any envy. And so what does this look like? What does a church family who is loving God and loving others look like? Well, this is where we get to our statement. We're going to be a church family committed to loving God and loving others first through authentic faith. Next week, we're going to unpack what authentic faith looks like. If you want to read ahead, you can go to Romans chapter 12, and most of Romans chapter 12 is describing to us what it looks like to have an authentic faith. For us, that means this. We want a faith that lives and breathes outside of Sundays, between Sundays, not just on Sunday mornings. How many of you know it's pretty easy for us to pull it together for three hours on a Sunday? Right? It's pretty easy for us to um, make it appear that our lives are tied together with a nice bow. And for some of us, as soon as we get in the car on the way home, something happens with that bow and it just unravels, doesn't it? And the reality of our life, the chaos of our life, settle in on us. Well, we don't want to come into Sundays as an opportunity to simply showcase our best foot forward in such a way where we become hypocritical about the challenges that are happening in our life. We want Sundays to be a reflection of our worship for God, but we want our faith to live and breathe between Sundays. I want to be able to run into people between Sundays and not worry about the disposition of my heart. I want to be able to have someone tap me on the shoulder during the week and not worry about how I'm going to respond to the interruption that's created in my life. I want to be able to go through my week in such a way that our walk with God is so consistent that all of a sudden it's authentic. Now, authenticity means we're broken. Authenticity means we're going to have to learn how to forgive one another. Authenticity means um, we're going we're gonna to see one another's warts from time to time. And rather than point and judge, we're going to run to the cross and embrace one another. So we want to be a church that 
loves God and loves others through authentic faith that lives and breathes outside of Sundays, but also a church that pursues healthy relationships. Boy, the church should be the place where people go to figure out what it looks like to have healthy relationships, right? And how many of you have lived a life where that is probably the opposite of true? Where if you want to see dysfunctional relationships, the first thing that comes to your mind is just a church setting. When you want to see backbiting and anger and jealousy, you go to a church because that's where it's highlighted. If you want to see pride and ego on display, you go to a church because that's where that's at. Boy, we want to be able to live in such a way where uh, we love God and love others, and in doing so, we learn what it looks like to live with the fruit of the Spirit in our hearts. You read through the second half of Romans 12, it's so beautifully outlined. Romans 12 uh, starts with a statement that says, uh, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice wholly acceptable unto God. Here's what it means. And he goes for about five or six verses and he talks about an authentic faith. And then verses seven through 21, I think is the last verse. He goes, this is how it's displayed in your relationships. You're going to outdo one another in honoring one another. You're going to have genuine love for one another. There's going to be forgiveness. There's going to be openness with one another. And so we as a church, we are going to pursue healthy relationships which means it's going to be hard and difficult, but we're going to strive to do so. And then thirdly, our church is going to be a church that pursues giving every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. Folks, it's all about Jesus. If you're watching online and this is your first time or maybe you're in the service today, uh, if, if, if we do not introduce you to Jesus, then we have failed. We have failed. And church... Every single thing that we do should be a big, shining billboard that simply points people to Jesus. A lot has changed in 135 years. Um, I want to say about 10 years ago, um, we did a, uh, a celebration and, and sweet Daphne Sturtz uh, put together kind of a reader's theater of the different uh, eras of our church and different things that our pastors had experienced in those 135, 125 years at that time. A lot has changed in 125 years. But there is no plan B for the church. There's no plan B. And so for us, our heart's desire is for us to come back to this idea of what it looks like to be a church. Could you imagine what our community would look like if we were 100% successful living out this statement? What would our community look like if we were 100% successful in pursuing an authentic faith? What would it look like if we, just the people in this room, figured out what it meant to have healthy relationships. How many other relationships would that impact? How many other uh, relationships would be influenced if we figured out what it looked like 
to have healthy relationships. Could you imagine what our community would look like if we collectively in this room simply said, I'm going to give every person the opportunity to meet Jesus in my life. Let's forget our community. Could you imagine um, just what your family would look like if we were to achieve this statement? Just in your family, if you figured out what healthy relationships look like, if you figured out what authentic faith looked like, and just in your family, you gave every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. Do you see how shifting of a statement this could be in our church? Yeah. So for the next few weeks, this is what we're going to do. We're going to pursue these three values in terms of authentic faith, healthy relationships, and giving every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. We're going to unpack those over the next few weeks. But for today, we are a church, and we are a church family committed to loving God and loving others. And so I ask you this morning, have you given your heart to Jesus? Have you received him? Have you believed in him? It doesn't matter what your resume is. It doesn't matter what you have done in terms of uh, putting yourself in a position to be worthy of his love. He already loves you. He has already sent his son so that you could have this opportunity to become a child of God. Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you just said from this day forward, I want to be in the family of God. That adoption is waiting for you and he offers it for you today. Have you identified with him by baptism? Here in the next few weeks, we're going to have some of our people get baptized. Have you identified with him by baptism? Has there been a point in your life that you said, I identify with Jesus and I'm willing to identify with his followers, therefore, I will get baptized. If you need more information on what that looks like, please reach out to us. What is preventing you from committing to Jesus wholeheartedly? For some of you, it means committing to a church family. In the next few weeks, we're going to unpack what that looks like for you. What it looks like for you to say, this is my church, and this is where I'm going to commit my life to. You say, why is that so important? Well, we think it's scriptural. Every single place in the New Testament, people were committed to a local group of believers. The whole New Testament is filled with letters written to these individual churches that operated together and were committed to one another. And so we're going to ask you, have you committed to a church family? Not so that we can rush you into a decision, but so that we can position your heart in such a place that says, what might be preventing you from making that commitment? And how will that commitment show up in 2024? We are going to be a church family committed to loving God, loving others, through authentic faith, through healthy relationships, and giving every person the opportunity to meet Jesus. Can I pray for you this morning? Gracious God, thank you for the opportunity to receive the gift of salvation. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to commit to a local church. Lord, it's our prayer that our lives would, we, would reflect our commitment to you and your church. So, Lord, would you reveal to us the obstacles that would prevent us from committing to your church, to you? And by your grace and with your help, would you please empower us to conquer these obstacles? I love you. We trust you. 
you are enough. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at rosebergfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, we invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.